up down, you know, you know, on the ground beside him and started tying off the, the worm and, you know, all the blood vessels and all that sort of thing. So it was a pretty horrific accident and got him on a stretcher and on the back of the ute and, and down the same corrugations that had wrecked his motorbike and you know, changed his life forever. You know, got him in the plane, away they went. Uh, he was probably about 10 minutes away from, you know, from the end. The center in all sections of the child where it's one of the four He's breathing okay at the moment. Is it a big property? That blood pressure is not coming up. Hi, my name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Wiradjuri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. It takes a certain kind of person to work and manage cattle. You have to be tolerant of flies, be willing to put up with the heat and sometimes mud, and you have to have a fair degree of resilience. In this podcast, I'm interviewing Alan Cooney, the CEO of the Northern Australia Pastoral Company. NAPCO, as it's known for short, is one of Australia's largest private landholders and oldest cattle producers, operating across 14 properties in the Northern Territory and in Queensland. NAPCO employ a couple of hundred staff across a vast footprint, and it's not surprising that they've had to use the services of the Flying Doctor many a time. In fact, the company recently made a generous donation to the refurbishment of the RFDS base at Mount Isa, as when they added it up over their long history of 145 years, they've had to call on the Flying Doctor more than 100 times for medical emergency assistance. G'day, Alan. G'day, how are you? I'm good. Before we dive into all your adventures with NABCO, could we first learn a little bit about you and your background? Where did you grow up? Yeah, so I grew up in I grew up in Western Queensland. I was born in a town called Cunnamulla, which most people have heard of, but my home village was a little town called Yulo, uh, which was on the next river west of Cunnamulla, about 70 kilometres to the west. And my family had been there for, for several generations. My great-grandfather went there as a um, shearer, was a uh, gun shearer in the in the big sheds in the west. He was a uh, he was a very strong labour man, so he withdrew his labour in one of the big shearer strikes and had to build a um, had to have some enterprise. There was no there was no sort of way of supporting a family. He had a young family at the time, uh, so he we went out in the bush and got some bush timber and built a bush shed. Used cane grass to thatch it in what's called a bow shed and set up a butcher shop. So he used to buy uh, broken down bullocks from the bullock teams that were going through the area and he would um, he would slaughter those and break them down and sell them through the butcher shop and that's that's the uh, that was the start of his sort of ventures outside of outside of shearing and he then bought a little uh, block of land for a butcher's paddock to hold the cattle and and it got bigger and bigger and when the shearer strike finally finished he went back to work uh, back to shearing and starting to deal a few cattle and that sort of thing and my, my uh, great-grandmother actually ran the butcher shop for a number of years and 
Eventually, my grandfather, who was only a little tacker at the time, was playing with matches out the side of the butcher shop and burned it down. So, so they had a bit of a family conference, and he, he, and they decided they wouldn't rebuild the butcher shop because they were over being butchers. So they um, purchased another little block of land, which was an ex was a paddock off an ex Sydney Kidman property, and and started there. And over his lifetime, he built up a family pastoral business. So I grew up in that pastoral business. And uh, eventually, over time, uh, owned a fair percentage of it and operated and was in a partnership with my mother and father for, for a period of time and then uh, in a partnership with my wife for a period of time. Yeah, so do you love the land? Is that Having been brought up in, in that sort of environment, is it like in your blood? Yeah, it is. Yeah, there's no doubt. I, I've been a gone from there for 20 years, but I still think about it every single day. It's like the lost love that we... The, the one that got away that we never stopped thinking about. And it was a bit like that with me. I still think about it every single day. As, as recently as about an hour ago, I, I, I had this thought turning, over, thought turning over in my mind that I'd really like to go back because it's, it's there's been three years of good seasons out there and this year is just going to be an astonishing wildflower spring. So, uh, and I really feel like I should stop doing what I'm doing and down tools and just leave and go out and see the wildflowers. <laughs> Can you? What does the landscape look like there? Could you describe it? It's it's red mulga. So where we were, we there was about thirty percent red mulga lands, and then there was flood out plains and creeks and uh, ranges to the west. Uh, the, you know the red ranges you see in every photo of Outback Australia. They were uh, you know low desiccated ridges. I think is the term for them. But but it was a beautiful landscape. It's it's we we probably underappreciated it when we lived there, but people from anywhere and we had visitors from anywhere and everywhere all over the world come through you know our family home over the years and and they all they were all just awe inspired by the by the landscape that we really probably took for granted now that i've been away for a while i just realize how beautiful it is it's wild it's a wild australian landscape where if you go out into it and you're, and you're unfamiliar with it it can be quite unforgiving as when you were a child growing up were there any times when you had to call in the flying doctor or, or your family did no we didn't there was times later in life when i was running the business that we had to call the flying doctor in but no we we were lucky and i sheer blind luck because when I was a little fella, I was three or four or something like that, I used to hook off into the bush. Mum could never find me because I was over the fence with these two dogs and gone and, and uh, she never knew where I was, but I was out exploring and turning things over, turning rocks over as it was under them and all that sort of stuff. But, so it was a pretty idyllic sort of uh, childhood. As a, and mum finally, mum finally put a stop to it all because I had two younger sisters and and I was sort of getting to the stage when I was trying to drag these little baby girls out into the bush. And mum said, no, you're not, you can't do that anymore. So she didn't seem to be too worried that I'd be out there getting getting lost or mauled or anything like that. So you, without question, were a free-range kid. You had unlimited space and opportunity to explore. Now, when um, you were an adult and you were living with your wife there on that same property, there was a point where she was pregnant and um, with twins and things didn't quite go as you had planned. What happened there? We lived in, in a flood out area, so a little bit of rain would isolate us from the whole world. Like We were, we were seven kilometres behind uh, about ten creeks uh, that would come down and flood and it was just impossible to get in and out. But we also had a flying doctor airstrip, which was about seven or eight hundred metres from the house. So we were in this situation, it was, uh, there'd been quite a bit of rain, it was flooding, 
um, and she started to leak, and she, I think she was about five months pregnant at that stage. So, you know, and it, it sort of started to appear that the, the waters were going to break. So we um, we got on the flying doctor. We had one of those green boxes that everybody had. Asked them what we should do, and they, you know, with a bit of toing and froing, decided the best thing they could do was evacuate us. So, so they came in. Uh, I carried across to I carried across the mud, and, and she walked across the walked up to the airstrip and. Stuck her on the plane, and in a way she went. So uh, much, much to my disgust, she left me with a, a two-year-old and um, in the floodwater, and I had to be a proper father for a little while, which was a bit of a, uh, a shock to the system. <laughs> uh, she did a lot of the parenting with her when I was, when I was off doing doing all the boy stuff. So she was gone a couple of days when I managed to get the car out, and I grabbed the eldest daughter, and away we went. We hooked off to Brisbane to see what was happening but as, as it turned out uh, she did go full term and, and the girls were very healthy babies and they're, they're healthy adults now one's got two kids of their own. I was just thinking of you carrying her across the mud very chivalrous but not so happy about having to deal with the two-year-old on her departure. <laughs> Now, earlier you mentioned that you, uh, at one point, you'd come across a motor vehicle accident. Could you tell me what happened that instance? Yeah, uh, one of the one of the people that was working for me had left the station heading into town, and when she got up on the main road, she found a, a couple. Um, they were on their honeymoon, riding around Australia in a with a motorbike with a sidecar and a dog. They'd come up the road from Burke, and the road was very corrugated, and that. That particular road from Burke to uh, Hungerford was well known in that part of the world as the worst road in the world. And so what had happened, it had done quite a bit of damage to the motorbike and the sidecar, uh, just as it came past our turnoff, and speared the motorbike off the side of the road and, and jammed him between a tree and the petrol tank of the motorbike. And it came up between his leg and then bent it back and pretty much tore the leg off. So Lisa came along and, and, and very fortunately, like if it had happened 400 metres further back down the road, they, she wouldn't have seen them because she would have came onto the highway before our turnoff and uh, not seen them. But his wife was a nurse. She put a tourniquet out of and made out of their belt or yeah. it might have been something else, a bit of rope or something, and she pulled it up really tight and stopped most of the bleeding. And then she, and there was, she didn't have a radio uh, in a car and she rushed back to the homestead. Unfortunately, I was there. She told me what had happened, and I went up, took a radio, went up, and we immediately got onto the flying doctor. And they uh, they had a plane at Thargaminda at the time, so so they were in the air in a few minutes, like probably at, at most ten minutes, but probably more like five, because they're actually at the at the uh, aerodrome and ready to go. So they came straight over. We picked them up from our airstrip, which was set up for a flying doctor near the homestead rushed them up to the to the scene and they took one look at this guy and you know just me- immediately went into overdrive it was quite it's quite good to see it was absolute professionals doing a, a marvelous job and there was a, a nurse and the pilot was with them I think and the doctor so uh, so the nurse just immediately went into overdrive she put a lot of saline straight into the guy and the doctor got down you know you know on the ground beside him and started tying off the, the wound and you know all the blood vessels and all that sort of thing. So it was a pretty horrific accident, and we finally got him, got him on a stretcher and on the back of the ute, and, and down the same corrugations that had wrecked his motorbike and you know, changed his life forever. We uh, we charged back with him, lay him on the back of the ute, back to the flying docker plane, and they 
you know, got him in the plane away they went to uh, they took him to Charleville first and did some emergency surgery there and then I think they evacuated him to Brisbane um, but it was a it was a difficult day for, for him but uh, everybody but you know we ran a pretty good operation we had people with first aid training and we'd done all the training ourselves and you know on reflection I think we did a pretty good job because we were you know, we were as calm as the flying doctor were was until that flying doctor got there, and then we all started to we all started to lose it a little bit. But absolutely saved that guy's life. Like if it hadn't, if it if if all the stars hadn't aligned up the way they did, uh, he was probably about ten minutes away from you know from the end. Uh, and the doctor said that. What happened with the, his new wife and his dog? Did they have to wait behind us? I know they took the whole trio in the plane. I put my wife <laughs> So the wife and the dog and the the injured man with the virtual leg cut off. Oh my gosh! And then you were just left with the motorbike mess at your drive. <laughs> we packed the motorbike. We we sort of took it back to the station, and and uh, they eventually came and got it uh, at one stage because they cut they cut all his clothes off with a pair of scissors uh, so they could uh, get at him, and and he had all his money and everything in a in a tobacco tin in his in the top pocket of his shirt and we just took all the clothes all the bloody clothes and you know all the stuff that the doctor had you know because they just they pull things apart and throw them on the ground and it's um you know they leave a bloody mess behind these flying doctors <laughs> so we went, we went and cleaned up the mess and got all this stuff and just took it to the dump anyway we got a call from from his wife about four or five days later and you know, she was pretty upset and she said, well, you know, somebody's stolen his money. And I said, oh, there's nobody here would would do anything like that. Uh, anyway, we finally went down to the dump and ratted around and found the remains of his shirt because it was cut into about five pieces and here was the tobacco tin with all the money in it. So, you know, <laughs> we, we, yeah. What good Samaritans. You went all the way to the dump to go and, and look through the old discarded bloodied clothes so that you could find the money for people that you hardly knew. That's amazing. We didn't know them at all. But anyway, they, we got got the money back to them. Uh, I wasn't there when they came. They came back around for a visit to thank people. Some some years later, I wasn't there, but they went to the Flying Doctor base in Charles and thanked all the staff. And that, so they were very thankful. And, you know, they went on and had a, I'm sure they went on and had the you know, life they were always going to have, minus one leg. And he, <laughs> Because they had to remove the leg so high up near the hip, he wasn't ever able to you know, wear a prosthetic leg or anything like that. Right. It was a pretty traumatic day, but it's a it's a funny they're funny things those sort of uh, incidents and accidents. Oftentimes they make people. People come, you know, they lose a lot, but they gain a lot at the same time. And and, I, I, and I'm sure it was the case because people had sort of told me about the visit. I was, as I said, I wasn't there, but uh, it seemed to have made this guy who came in his own words, much better human for it. Alan, you joined NAPCO about 14 months ago as CEO. Could you give me like the elevator pitch for what NAPCO is and does just for people that maybe aren't familiar with the work and the size of the company? Yeah, so the North Australian Pastoral Company is uh, one of the big uh, beef producing operations in Australia and we're a vertically integrated business. So a piece of steak that will land on your plate at a restaurant a roast that you might pick up at Woolworths and uh, take home to feed your family is is come through a system where we we start right at one end with the breeding, uh, the genetics. Uh, we take the animals uh, right through the whole process, right out the other end. So 
you know, we're, we're a big operation, like it's NAPCO's 6.1 million hectares. Uh, you know, we have a land estate of 6.1 million hectares, which is similar in size to Tasmania. Uh, and it's distributed over, over several thousand kilometres. And there's, it's a supply chain. So we have several missions for ourselves in the business. One is to be sustainable. So let's, let's be great stewards of the lands that we, we're doing business on. So on, on all our landscapes, uh, 99% of it's never been ploughed, never been fertilised, never been cleared. Uh, and it's very much in its natural state. So, um, you know, there's a lot of cattle run on, on a vast area uh, and they take what they need from the environment, but they leave the rest there. So there's, there's, there's threatened species on our, on our properties that are not, um, not represented more widely. Um, and we don't think of them as threatened species. We think of them as protected species because what we've been doing for 145 years has actually protected those. Our, our sort of mission with cattle is that every day, like from the day they're born to the day to the day they go to the meatworks is the best day uh, they will ever have. So, you know, everything we do with, with animal management is, is done in a way that uh, is good for the animal because good for the animal is good for us and really they only have one bad day uh, and that's their last day and that's probably can be said for every single living thing on the planet. So, uh, but we try to do it in a, we try to do it in a, um, you know, a really consistent way. We, we own the cattle from the moment they're born to the moment they to, um, to the moment they go to the works uh, and we look after them the whole way through. So, and that give, that then gives us a, a very good you know, product at the end of the day. So. That, that must make it really for young young people, jackaroos, jillaroos who want to come out and, and manage cattle, learn how to, to work on the land and so forth. That must be really good for them to be able to connect the work that they're doing with a sustainable practice. What sort of... Uh, action does NAPCO take to instill safety and risk management uh, in terms of accidents and injuries for staff? Because you operate over such remote territories and such a large uh, work crew that are working in often really dusty, hot, sweaty conditions. What actions have to be taken just purely from managing personnel to make sure that people are operating safely and that, you know, accidents are minimised and, and staff as well as, as livestock are all okay. Yeah, we, we do a lot of training. Nobody gets on a horse or does any of the, any of the um, you know, more high-risk work without proper and adequate training. Like We do a lot of it. And we, it's continuous all the time and they get training on, on all variety of things like you know, one of the first things they get trained on, on on a number of the stations is how to set up the um, night lights for landing a flying doctor plane on the station, that sort of stuff. So uh, we do we do a whole range of things. Horsemanship schools are, uh, you know, are, are run all the time. We do uh, low-stress livestock handling. So um, one, that's good for the livestock, but it's also good for the humans if the livestock are not running over the top of them. So... Uh, and we, we teach them how to handle livestock properly and well and safely, and and how to ride horses safely, and how to make. We've got we've got one of the one of the um, you know, some guy who was famous riding motorbikes from races around the world comes out and spends time in all our stations and teaches people how to ride motorbikes, and got a really good strong safety culture through the whole business. But it is a challenging, you know, it's a challenging environment. You've got horse, horses which are big and 
strong and fast and you've got cattle which are big and strong and not quite as fast as a horse uh, and then you've got motorbikes on the move you've got trucks you've got you know, there's a lot of moving parts all the time so we, so we invest a lot in that we invest a lot in safety and it's a really nice thing for you know me as the ceo laying in bed at night thinking about what's happening you know three thousand kilometers away in the northern territory to know that if something does go wrong um you know, the flying doctor's there and not you know i grew up with that that sort of umbrella guardian angel umbrella sitting there and even though you know we didn't have to call on it too many times and we try not to call on it too many times in our business like i'd, I'd love never to have the flying doctor come to an apco property but the uh, reality is they they do but it's a it's a really good feeling and it's i was talking to i was talking to one of the previous ceos a, a, a couple of days ago and and um, he was there and there's a guy broke his leg pretty badly at, at um, on one of our stations and they'd call the flying doctor and he said it was an, an amazing feeling to hear that plane come in and do the circuit come in and land and, and, you know all of a sudden they felt everything was starting to be you know it was under control and the guy was going to be safe and and that's a that's a very common feeling through the whole business and and all the staff and he, he like a number of times a year and this this sort of con- constantly catches us by surprise but a group of the young people will do will do something off their own bat just not even they'll have some sort of fundraiser for flying doctor so you know they'll all trundle off to camel wheel and have a cricket day or do something like that and to raise funds for the flying doctor so and so you know it's not just it's not just the fact that it's there it's the fact that it's there and it's appreciated and it's appreciated by the very people that are, that are uh, you know the biggest beneficiaries of it do you have to travel a lot for your job alan do you end up traveling over these remote stations in queensland and northern territory very often yeah i do and it's it's easily the best part of my job for me i you know, love the bush and particularly that wild that wild country out in the west it's very untouched and it's rare like it's raw beauty and it's you know, there's rare little places up there that very few humans ever get to go to and we're fortunate we live in a we live in an age with great technology so um, you know i can jump in a helicopter and, and cover you know quite big areas of country in a pretty short period of time and i can drop in here and drop in there and see what's going on and flying along the helicopter you sort of look down and say oh, i wonder what that is and you scoot down and have a look and so I get I get around quite a lot, um, and I try to get around all the stations. Not just sit in an office, but actually be out there on the yeah, ground right. in some yeah. way. And I, I, I've got a you know I've got a great advantage as a CEO, you know, in this particular business because there's no job on any of those stations that I haven't done myself. You pick a job on yeah. any job on any station, and at some stage or other, I've done it. I grew up in that world and ran you know, ran our own family business, and and you know the hot days out in the sun you know, smacking in steel post with a with a post driver uh, you know i've done that I've done bush butchering for you know to feed a team and yeah you name it i've done it walk 10 miles because i got bogged and forgot to take a radio with me everything they do i've done at some stage so, um, <laughs> falling off horses uh, yeah, slam a finger in the cattle yard gate so. Yeah, you name it, you've done it. And I guess that's what makes a good CEO, doesn't it? Somebody who's who can walk the walk, who's already um, been there and, and experienced what uh, the staff are experiencing on the ground and therefore you can operate with a putting in place those systems that are going to make sure it runs well and safely and, 
and gets uh, achieves what it's trying to achieve. For both sides of that equation, there's a relatability. Like I can relate to what they're doing and they can relate to me because they know that I've walked a mile in their shoes at some stage. I'm very proud of the company and the traditions and the things that it stands for and you know, something to be proud of as well. And it constantly fascinates me when I go to the stations and it's not something they do just because I'm there because a lot of them don't even know that I'm going to turn up. But they all wear the company clothes and it's not a requirement of the business or anything like that but they're just proud to go to work in a day with a you know with a company shirt with north australian pastoral company on on one side of their chest and alexandria station on the other or whatever it might be they're taking pride in in themselves means they take pride in what they do and they take pride in what we do and they and it shows right through the whole business well the rfds is 94 this year uh, approaching our centenary and you are well past your centenary being 145 years old so we'll consider you our older cousin <laughs> and we're very happy as uh, the flying doctor to continue to to provide service to your 14 stations and operations across northern territory in queensland it's been really good to chat with you, Alan. Thank you so much for letting us a little bit into your life. Likewise, La. It's been uh, it's been good fun. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with family and friends, and don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join our new Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community, where you can chat to other listeners. And please do try out our new podcast hotline. You can call and leave an audio message with questions and feedback on the podcast. The number for the hotline is 02-8405-7928. We look forward to hearing from you. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Coolen. Thanks again for listening.